Kujigigu, which is hello and welcome in my native language of Tang. Uh, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands in which we are. As an Aboriginal person, my wife's are mindful that we come. We come on an Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. I acknowledge them as traditional custodians of the land. They look after our land and keep us strong the land we're on. Uh, and also pay my respects for their elders, uh, as well as any Aboriginal people who are in the room today. And thank you to everyone for turning up. Uh, and thank you, for Professor, for that one wonderful warm welcome. So I'm Scott Avery. Um, I'm an Aboriginal man uh, from the Warramai Nation. Um, I'm also profoundly deaf, so I, I wear a cochlear implant. Um, I should have two, but one's busted. But I, I often have to point that out. I mean, I, I make my way around in venues like this and forums like this. But sometimes when I go to Aboriginal communities, they're a bit standoffish, they see this. And you're kind of going, oh, no, no, it's, I'm, I'm deaf. I wear this for my hearing. They go, oh, you're deaf, thank goodness for that. We thought you are a copper. <laughs> Which is pretty dark when you think about it because many of the things that we might take for granted as disability aids, it's actually not familiar in these places and that's a bit of a theme that uh, permeates through this talk. Uh, and so I'm also uh, being Aboriginal, being deaf, I say I'm proud times two, makes me a member of the first People's Disability Network. So they're a disabled people's organisation uh, and they're totally run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability from their board through their management um, and they advocate for rights. And I actually, when I was doing a lot of my work, when we were talking about cultures inclusion, I actually did that when I was part of that organisation. It wasn't uh, until some time later when I finished my uh, research degree that I've ended up in Western Sydney and actually teaching some of this now. So uh, if I can go on what we're going to be talking about today, the title of this is Cultures Inclusion. Um, I actually brought it with me. If I can. It's basically this book that we produced. Uh, and my history is I was working for the First People's Disability Network and I was doing a lot of work actually with the Aboriginal Health Plan. Uh, the reason I bring this is not to show off what's a resource, it's actually my totem, because it reminds me of all the stories of people who shared. So my research question, my PhD research question, I went out to talk to Aboriginal people with disability. My research question was, what is your story? So they told me the story, and uh, whenever I present here, I'm always reminded of the people I met, and the tuition that they gave me, their learned wisdom, their experiential knowledge. Uh, so, a lot of drawing of from this as a resource, a program where an Aboriginal disabled people's organisation went out and talked with Aboriginal people with disability, not the service providers, not the mediators, not the teachers, we spoke with them and we wanted to get their story. And the question is, what is your story, it was often met with, well, no one's actually asked us that before. So uh, that's the thing that we're talking about. But when we're talking about Aboriginal disability, what I want to do today is kind of take you on this journey. I really want to get to how cultural knowledge, Indigenous cultural knowledge, is a pathway out of some of the exclusion. So we're going to start with how, it, how uh, Indigenous values and knowledge uh, exist in our communities, how that's been disrupted, creating these forces of exclusion and what's the pathway out of it. And if you want to understand 
from the basis a cultural value of Indigenous inclusion, you have to cast your mind back 25,000 years. So out in Lake Mungo in uh, Western New South Wales, there's this archaeological site and there's footprints embedded in the clay. And amongst the footprints, it's the largest uh, archaeological site of footprints in the world. Uh, and amongst it is this single right line of footprint. So it's right footprint, right footprint, right footprint. No corresponding left footprint. And the archaeologists who found that were kind of a bit baffled. They're going, oh, what's going on here? And someone had a really bright idea. Let's ask the elders of that community. And the elders go, that's a one-legged man on a hunt. And the archaeologists went back and they measured the footprint. They said, oh, he's not struggling. He's actually on the hunt with it. And I said, this is pointing to an indigenous culture value of inclusion where people in indigenous cultures and not just Australian indigenous cultures, you see this when you go to indigenous communities worldwide, an indigenous value that we are all part of an ecology in a community, we all have roles and responsibilities, they are valued and they are respected. So this is this, this emblematic uh, story of the one-legged man. Now, about 250 odd years ago, that was disrupted uh, through colonisation and there's a story about colonisation with Indigenous people, Aboriginal people being dispossessed in their lands. The untold story behind that is at the same time the Industrial Revolution was going on in Europe and there's this social revolution and what that was happening is called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment re-disrupted re, uh, the existing social structure and created this. It said if you were able to participate in an economy, in a production, you are abled. But if you want, you are othered, you are disabled. So the commodification of human beings happened around the same time that Australia was being colonised. And so the architects of colonisation 250 years ago, hey, wouldn't it be great to set up this utopian society where we bring that into it? So many of the exclusionary practices have the origins, they're artefacts of some of the exclusion, exclusionary practice that was set in place 250 years ago. So that's what we have to overturn. Now, so if you're an Aboriginal person, that means you're not only dispossessed from your land, the social hierarchy, which has created this new class of people called disability, it's also dispossessed from your body. So uh, what the impact of that is, I'm gonna talk about this idea of intersectionality. It's a bit of a, sounds like it's really academic-y kind of word, but basically what it means is, if you are a member of a group, a smaller group, which constitutes a small group within two or more larger oppressed groups, so those two coming together, you're exposed to multiple forms, barriers to access to your inclusion. So you, if you're an Aboriginal person, you encounter structural racism. If you're a person with disability, you encounter structural ableism. Sometimes those work differently, sometimes they come together. So a really good idea of intersectionality coming together. It's one of the people I interviewed for my uh, research project was an Aboriginal man uh, with a cognitive impairment. Now, he doesn't drink, but he says when he goes to shopping centres, the public presentation of his cognitive impairment, plus how uh, Aboriginal and drip, uh, public prejudices around Aboriginal people and drinking, those two things come together. He goes, I get hassled by security guards. I can't get a bus. 
because they think he's intoxicated. Now, one of those things not coming together, so this is a really good example of how, if you're a member of both, the intersectionality. Again, this is something that sounds really academic and very conscious about inclusive language. It's actually something that's been picked up by the First Peoples Disability Community, and they embrace this because it's given them a vocabulary to explain that experience. It's more than just, I get racism and I get ableism, it actually comes together. So this idea of intersectionality, you can combine this to uh, what happens across your life. So what we have here is this life trajectory. So many people are familiar with life trajectory, it's basically the social conditions experienced in one part of your life, set the foundation or starting point for the next part of your life. So what we've got here is the two parts of the story coming together. Is at the top part, you've got the Aboriginal story and you've got the disability story under it. And often the way systems are designed, they'll, they'll do with one but not both. So it actually intersectionality, this idea of exclusion starts from the condition in which you're born with. So many of the public health environment, the facilities that you have, we take for granted for here. I'm talking things like running water, reliable electricity, access to health services, preventative health services, things that we might take for, for, take for granted in one environment, metropolitan environment, may not exist in another environment. And there's a correlation between that and the early onset, either, either it, there's an early onset of disability or it doesn't get picked up. And that can get carried into your early childhood. Uh, and so what happens is the next part of the story is you go into the early childhood. We know from the data that an uh, Indigenous child is 10 times more likely to be removed from their family and community compared to non-Indigenous children. We know that as a fact. That's the Aboriginal story. Then you take the medical model of disability diagnosis. You go to a clinical model of disability diagnosis. They're going, oh, no, no, we don't want it. We want to, we want to get rid of the noise. We want to get rid of the behavioural thing. So we're going to wait till that family environment settles down and we'll do a diagnostic test. So if you're in out-of-home care, you're bouncing from home to home to home, that doesn't exist. So there's a group of people that are missing a disability diagnosis. That then carried over into the education environment. And there's a thing we call, we call it in our community, bad black kid syndrome. It's basically our colloquialism for the disciplinary or punitive model of education. It doesn't go through the due diligence of seeing, is there an unsupported or undiagnosed disability having impact on your health outcomes? The result is suspension. They get expelled from school. Uh, so this is bad black kid syndrome. What happens is they're on the streets, they uh, are on this trajectory then where they're more likely to be uh, in, in uh, come up with the coppers, uh, in juvenile detention. So there's this trajectory uh, involved. Um, so that might be a bit depressing and a bit fatalistic, but the main takeaways from this are, in the education environment, there's a story before it, and there will be a story after it as well. So it's part of the trajectory. And what happens in your part of the world, the view you see, Sets the, sets the starting point for the next one. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, there are pivot points in here. You can actually adjust the trajectory away from this idea of detention. 
Uh, so this tool, um, there's a lot of narrative. We call it bad black syndrome, but the system likes to come up with its own labels and names. So one of the names and labels coming around is challenging behaviours, children with challenging behaviours. Um, and again, that is a narrative where the system puts the onus on the child. What this shows is vulnerability is not inherent in the individual. People are manoeuvred into situations where they're made vulnerable and you can alter that. So rather than challenging behaviours, you can use this as a tool to challenge the system. So that's the power of this intersectional analysis. I'm just going to do a quick uh, synopsis. I've heard mentions of policy approaches here. So I just want to acknowledge that if you're working in Aboriginal disability, this idea of intersectionality plays out in a very fragmented way. So on one side, you've, luckily we've got two feet. One foot, you've got to go to the Aboriginal side. The other foot, we've got to go to the disability side. And systems aren't, it's a really complex problem. And we kind of got to own the complexity here. The nature of the problem is different. We're two things coming together in complex ways. But systems are designed around having deep, hard silos. So the nature of intersectional actually confronts it just from the nature of problem you're dealing with. So if you're looking at the rights framework, on one part of the rights framework, you've got the Convention on the Rights of People with Disability. The other side of it, you have a declaration. And they're very different in nature. One's about individual rights of persons. The other one's about cultural rights of a group of people. So again, even their approaches are different. Within social policy, at a minimum, you, there's rights for the child as well and education policies. So two, you're gonna have to navigate is the Australian Disability Strategy, and you've also got Closing the Gap Framework. And uh, having been involved in public policy for 20 years as an advocate, it's a bit like having, uh, if you're Aboriginal and disability, it's a bit like having a uh, second favourite football team, in that they are, they have all, if you're uh, Aboriginal, in the Aboriginal policy, there's so many things. It's not, everyone wants us to do well, but, it's seen as a very narrow area. And the other side of it is in disability. You're talking about Aboriginal with disability strategy. It's kind of saying, yeah, we, it's great, but we've got all this to deal with. The idea of intersectionality coming together. But it is some optimism because the Royal Commission has been driving some of this, so it's actually trying to pull this closer. So there is some positive steps towards it in terms of the Australian disability strategy has referenced intersectionality as a guiding principle in its implementation. So it's on, the, it's on their radar. It's, it's still, it's referenced, it's not deep, but it's referenced. Similarly, closing the gap is acknowledging disability, so it's the Indigenous framework, is acknowledging disability within a sector strengthening. So it's not in close the gap, but it's kind of like you're in the queue coming through. So I just wanted to say this is some of the resources, and it's a bit like putting the jigsaw puzzle together. You're not gonna be able to find all this in one place. Does this apply to your area you work in? Does this idea of intersectionality hold in education? The answer is yes. And so what we have here is some data. This was drawn from the National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Social Survey. And the columns that you have, just to have extreme points, if you like, uh, for points of reference, is the first column you can see is if you're an Aboriginal person and you have severe and profound disability. 
and the, the middle column is uh, if you're an Aboriginal person without disability. And the rule of thumb you see in terms of the intersectional inequality that's experienced, if you are Indigenous and you have disability, that coming together, it's half the good indicator or possibly express indicator and twice the negatively expressed indicator. So that's the rule of thumb that you see in terms of educational attainment. You see this in the data all the way through. So that's just an example of statistical data and you see it in the testimony as well. Uh, just in terms of the explosion, I, I happened to go into, uh, not in a week, to a really great um, side event that had the hearing one just before this. And again, the idea of disclosure. Uh, so this is some work we did with the Australian Hear uh, Bureau of Statistics, specifically on hearing impairment. So very close to mine. Uh, being deaf, being Aboriginal, I tick two boxes for government consultation, so very close to uh, my heart, this topic. A lot of data, but I'm gonna boil it down to the punchline. In a classroom of 30 Aboriginal students, nine would have a hearing impairment. So roughly about high 20%, 28%, I think it was. So nine would have it. That was measured by a, a hearing test. Uh, of that group of nine, their level of educational attainment, so did I get past year 10, was half that of the other group of 21. So again, the data is holding in this set of data as well. So that's one part of the story. The next part of the story is the issue around non-disclosure. So of that group of nine, so what we did was we got them to, what the ABS did, uh, we had to advocate for it, but they filled the survey in and it said, do you have a hearing impairment? You tick yes or no. Then you had the hearing test. And we advocated for this because we could see this in community. So of that group of nine who, ha who had hearing test, only one of that nine had filled in, yes, I had a hearing impairment. So eight of the nine was unreported, undisclosed. Now, the medical approach to this would be, oh, we need to improve our diagnostic testing, our reach, our scope. But there is a story, and being deaf, I know this story. The way that public health programs and systems like to deal with the medical model approach is this idea of you suffer hearing loss this narrative around suffering. And so it creates this perception that we're broken and need to be fixed. Uh, I don't suffer it, believe me, that is my natural state. If you can turn the world off, it is a blessed heaven. <laughs> now, I, I can tell you this story. People look at me going, oh, it hasn't bothered you. You got a PhD, you're standing up in front of people. I'm telling you this because there's a 14 year old in the classroom right now that's being made to feel broken, or they won't engage with hearing technology because they think it's a bad thing to have. I said, that's the story. That's the second story beyond the medical model. So how does the cultural model address that? Uh, does this replicate outside? Uh, we looked at all social indicators. So we're looking at not just educational attainment, we were looking to access the health services. We looked at um, access to transport. We looked to, did you get a job or not? Every single indicator that we looked at that a system was designed to support 
had that pattern, that rule of thumb, every single indicator. So what you're seeing, exclusionary practice, what the outcomes that you're seeing in education are replicated. So Aboriginal people, if you're an Aboriginal person with disability, the repetitive exposure to this, it's not just happening here. It's like they're being conditioned into this situation. Happens off. There was one exception to this. And it had nothing to do with the systems, it had to do with Aboriginal Indigenous culture. The one categorical exception that we saw, that if you're an Aboriginal person and have disability, the rate at which you participate in your community events and in cultural events is the same as if you did not. Okay, so that's it. Parity of cultural and community participation in Indigenous communities. Now that's quite significant. We think about how system wants to solve these problems using a system response. The data is showing you've got some a platform of cultural and community participation to leverage from that uh, when you're looking at that. So here's the one, here's line aside. We talked about the one-legged Mungo man. We can see it in our indigenous practices now, in our indigenous culture. This value of we're all respected, we all have worth, has remained intact despite all the disruption that has happened to our communities. So we're saying, how can we now work with this? That's what we're moving out from. How can we move from, if we have a, a value system that's based on inclusion, how can we move out of this exclusionary culture and into this? So this is where the question went. I actually thought this would probably been a better title, actually. But what can Indigenous knowledge of inclusion offer towards educational justice? We're going to see this as justice for people with disability. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to show a video that goes for about five minutes, uh, which we developed within the first People's Disability Network. And we did it for the Aboriginal child with disability to send out to community organisations and we said, play this to them. If people were looking for what Benny's disability was, well, that's not the point. Billy's disability was he was left out. And one thing Indigenous knowledge teaches us is not our broken ears, our broken eyes, or our broken limbs that disable us, it is our broken spirit. And having sat through the last day, few days, and hearing about our approaches to inclusion, notice that there's a journey beyond you. So whether you are, there's a journey beyond this. Nature does not intend this. This is not a natural world where people are isolated and excluded. We all have a part and nature wants this part to work together. That is what cultural knowledge. So wherever you are in your inclusion journey, know that there's a path further beyond that. It's a path where disability is valued and respected for its own worth. And you can imagine a day, you can be very optimistic there, you can imagine today that one of your students is standing here, right here where you are, and saying, I am Indigenous, I have a disability, and I'm very proud to be speaking to you today. Until that time, Marambu, which is thank you, and I'll hand back to the professor.